Hello, everybody. Welcome to Master the NEC series sponsored by Electrical Code Academy Incorporated, where we talk about the National Electrical Code. This podcast series is provided uh, by ECA in order to help educate you on the National Electrical Code. In today's episode, we're going to talk about some changes that took place to the 2017 code. We're going to talk about Chapter 3. Now, I don't know that we'll get through all of them of Chapter 3 in this episode, so this might be a multiple episodes uh, series here, but we have talked about other changes, but I figured we'd talk about some of the changes that took place to Chapter 3, and so that, you know, you can get kind of an overview since a lot of you aren't familiar with the 2017 code yet. It's just come out. Uh, I believe it started shipping yesterday. Many of us who are sit on code panels already have our PDF version And, of course, those of us that were involved in the code change process uh, are already kind of looking at all the changes and whatnot. And so so I thought we'd do a little episode where we talk about those changes and uh, and go from there. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to try to go over some of the changes in Chapter 3 from uh, Article 300 uh, all the way up to 370. Um, and we might not be able to cover them all. We're not going to be try to get too detailed. Uh, we're just going to try to go over some of the changes because, again, I understand that it's hard to pay attention to a long podcast. So I will try to keep it as short as possible. Um, but, you know, you know me. I'm long-winded anyway, so we'll see how it goes. All right, let's talk about one of the first changes in uh, Chapter 3 is to change to Table 300.5. They added some footnotes A and B. Now, we all know that footnotes are required code language. They're not informational notes. They are footnotes. Uh, and these footnotes are alluding to two new additions here. And that is where we're adding uh, the, a lesser depth of cover requirement for listed low-voltage lighting systems. And when you're dealing with pool spas and fountains and whatever, when you're dealing with a non-metallic raceway and you have a lighting system, low voltage lighting system that is 30 volts uh, or less, then you can have a reduced depth cover. Uh, And so you have the normal cover requirements in table 300.5 for underground installations, but you're going to have two little footnotes that remind you and says, hey, one. If you're dealing with listed low-voltage lighting systems, the lesser depth shall be permitted where specified in the installation instructions. So if a manufacturer gives you some instructions and they give you the depth and the material to use and whatnot, and it's a listed low-voltage lighting system, it is a listed system, then you can have a lesser depth than what's listed in the table. The other footnote is going to be a depth of six inches shall be permitted. Of course, it could be deeper. This is shall be permitted, so it's permissive. Um... It's saying, look, for pools, spas, fountains, when installing in a non-metallic raceway, is when it's uh, limited to not more than 30 volts, we're, uh, we're part of a listed low-voltage lighting system, then it doesn't have to be deeper than 6 inches. So it can be a depth of 6 inches is permitted for those applications. All right? So that's for lighting, low-voltage lighting around the pools, spas, fountains, all those type of applications, then you can have a lesser depth. Uh, what I will remind you, is in case we've done this or not in a series that if you remember when you were in 680.10 there was a depth requirement chart there and it really had to do with the wiring that was that was going through that five foot spatial limitation area which normally you don't have anything within that five foot unless it's associated with the pool right 
But if there was spatial limitations, if it was a complete raceway system, then you could run through that space and then you had to follow the depth requirements in that table. Well, incidentally, 680.10 no longer appears. The table is gone and it refers you over here to table 300.5. So I figured I'd just throw that little tidbit out there. We're not looking at our, uh, the uh, chapter six items today, but I just wanted to remind you that this table now for underground installations is going to apply to around the pool areas as well as normal general applications. Kind of want to throw that out. All right. The next change we're going to look at is going to be 300.5D4, 300 protection from physical damage when we're dealing with underground raceway systems. Uh, EMT was added to the list previously to protect from subject to physical damage. Uh, you, with, with underground raceways, it listed RMC, IMC, RTRC, if you're not familiar with that, that's reinforced thermal setting resin conduit. That's some heavy duty stuff. Uh, it had to be the XW type. Um, schedule 80, rigid, not schedule 40, it's schedule 80. All of those applications to protect it from physical damage, they, and, and 300.5D4 uh, has now been changed, okay? So uh, it is now adding EMT to that list. So this is an important statement because up to this point, EMT wasn't listed to have any uh, ability to provide that protection from physical damage. Uh, for raceway damage, um, and now it is. So EMT has been added to the list here. All right. Let's go on. Next one we're going to look at is 310.15B3A. This is the all-favorite rooftop adder requirement that has been in the code for at least two cycles here, whereas if I ran raceways or ca uh, cables above a rooftop and it was subject to direct sunlight, Depending on the height above the rooftop, I had to add this adder onto the, the, the temperature for the area. I had to also add this, this temperature adder onto it, and then I went to the table and I chose my uh, uh, value that I had to use for some type of derating. Well, that's gone away. The table is no longer there, so all those people that didn't care much for this table or wanted to argue it out, it's all gone. The key here is now you need to install your raceways or cables at least seven eighths of an inch above the surface. Okay, if you do that, then you don't have to do any additional adder. Okay, you still got your ambient adjustments, right? Uh, so you got to do all those other adjustments and corrections. But in this case, you don't have to worry about the adder if you keep it above seven eighths of an inch. Now, if you drop down onto the roof surface or your blocks that you're putting it on are less than 7 8 then you're going to have to add a 33 degree centigrade adder or a 60 degree Fahrenheit adder. Another thing I'll remind you that XHHW-2 does not require the adder regardless. So that didn't change. But now we've gotten rid of the table. Um, I don't know what this kind of serves because I don't think most people are not going to, uh, to install it directly on the roof. They're going to put it up on supporting blocks. But... As long as it's higher than 7 eighths of an inch, then you no longer have to worry about the adder application. So that was a change for 2017. Vigorous debate on 31015B3C. Next change is to table 31015B7, that familiar mini table that kind of... Here's what happened. So we used to have a table there. Uh, it was from 100 to 400 amps. And it basically allowed for diversity and reduction when you're dealing with 120, 240 volt systems. Uh, 
into the dwelling or and so you had this reduction here well the table that was removed in the 2014 edition and it simply went to the 83 percent of the service or feeder rating but now they've they, they didn't bring the table back as far as far as in the body of the text they did take the table and put it back in the annex so it is back in the annex now okay so you can refer to that table in the 2017 but here in as far as the code text there was a change it's still 83 percent which is what the table originally was based on so you know while it caused a lot of confusion it really didn't all you had to do is take the service or feeder rating and do it at 83 percent and that was the minimum size that it had to be it had to be at least that size okay then you deal with everything else that's associated with it whether it's your loads or you had to do adjustment of corrections or whatnot but you had to have a base point and that it couldn't be less than 83 percent okay all right, so that doesn't change. What did change is we got some direction now on how do we determine what is a feeder and service rating. Uh, before, people would do it based on a calculation. They, they really weren't, I think many people weren't sure where you get this value to even start this 83%. Uh, and basically, they, they added in here in a clarity that it, 240.6A is where you're going to go to get those standard amperage ratings or those ampacity ratings, okay? Uh, and so basically what we've got here is it still applies to 120, 240 volt systems for feeders and service conductors between 100 and 400 amperes, uh, single phase, but it also incorporates now 208, 120 volt systems, which are derived from a three phase system, but there's still two ungrounded conductors and a grounded conductor. You don't get the allowance of item number four, which is to reduce the size of the grounded conductor. Uh, you don't get that because it is a three-phase, a, a derivative of a three-phase four-wire system. So you can't reduce the neutral. So you don't get the allowance in item four as you would if it was a 120-240 volt system. But I can tell you for many applications where we're running a three-phase system to a building, but then it's branching off with the single-phase derivative to individual dwelling units that enough studies were shown that even since you're only taking off two hots and a grounded conductor off of that application, it didn't make it that much of a difference and you could still apply the values that are here in this table, okay? So that's what you get out of the 2017 for 31015B7, just a revision, and that 120, 280 volts were added to allowable voltages for dwelling units, service conductor, uh, and passities rating requirements, okay? Basically what was added here. Um, and let's see here, anything else that I want to add to that? Nope. That's just uh, what you get for the table. Oh, also I will remind you that it did throw in a little bit of language here that says, Hey, where correction and adjustment factors are required by 31015B2 or 3, they shall be permitted to be applied to the ampacity associated with the temperature rating of the conductor. So basically it's saying, Hey, I understand it. Previous years, people were confused that that table meant that all adjustments and corrections were already taken care of and you didn't have to do anything else. You could go straight to the table and that was incorrect. So that was kind of the genesis for the push to get rid of the table and get some clarified language in the 2014 edition under 31015B7. But now they went a little step further and reminded you and said, hey, we're going to add this language that says, hey, keep in mind that I can use the higher insulation value rating for the adjustment and corrections, and they still apply. But at the end of the day, 
it still can't be less than 83% of the rating, okay? So I'm just saying, all right. So, but anyway, it just gives you a little clarification in there. And of course, the information note reminds you that says, hey, in case you don't know where to get that service and feeder rating in order to be able to do that 83%, it's the values that are listed in the standard ampacity ratings of 240.6A. That's what you're going to deal with, all right? And also, it reminds you to go see the example in D7 uh, in Annex D. It will kind of give you some guidance. I don't know if I like the... the um, calculation because it's not a worst case scenario calculation. I think it's just a pure 83% calculation. And I don't remember if they actually add in kind of an adjustment and correction to kind of give you a real feel for how you would do that. But I think we know how to do adjustment and corrections. Uh, you can do an adjustment correction to give you an ampacity as long as that ampacity is adequate to handle the load. But in any case, it still can't be any size smaller than the 83% of the service or feeder rating. So that's kind of how you do it. But I don't, I don't, think they did that i submitted a change to the calculation but you know what i haven't checked it out to see if it was there you can go look and see if there was a change there i don't know that they added my little calculation in there all right let's go on to the next one next one is 312.5c exception item g all right so i think you all remember this one because i get a lot of calls about this part of the code where it says hey wait a minute hey mr abernathy i've got a panel and they're bringing in multiple non-metallic sheath cables through a single raceway. This is a non-flexible raceway. And sometimes they're recessed in the wall and I have to tell them, no, that's not true. You have to secure each cable. The exception doesn't apply. And they say, why? I said, because it's not a surface mounted. I'll say, oh, okay, I get you. This is the allowance where is every single cable has to be secured to the cabinet. However, there's an exception that says, look, if it's an entirely non-metallic sheath products that are going in it, it's a surface-mounted enclosure, and it's using a non-flexible raceway that's at least 18 inches and not more than 10 inches long. You follow all the requirements in there to be able to do this, securing the cable so many inches from the end of the raceway, uh, sealing the raceway, uh, making sure you have a certain amount of, of sheathing that comes into the enclosure. As long as you meet all those type of things, the only part of this one that got people confused is that 18 to 10 foot, does chapter nine, note one, uh, chapter nine, table one, note two say that I don't have to worry about any fill requirements because it's not a complete raceway. That was the only confusion. Can I treat it as a sleeve? Uh, and I think in the 2017, they've cleared that up. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, hey, look, you have to treat that 18 to 10 foot sleeve, if you will, as a complete raceway. And the raceway fill requirements do apply. And that is one conductor at 53%, two conductors. Um, when we're, well, as you're going in the, in the top of it, the two conductor application, we're making sure that we're not more, uh, when, you, when you go into the top of it, that I am not more than 31% if it's two conductors. And then I'm not more than 40% if it's over two conductors. That still applies. So that sleeve is to be considered a complete conduit or tubing system for this application. And then it goes on to say, note two uh, does not apply here, of chapter nine does not apply here, which is talking about where you don't count them for protection. They're saying, look, you cannot load up that raceway with all the non-metallic sheath products that you want. You still have to meet the fill requirement. That's what it's saying. It's still heat. Now, there are other areas in the code that might allow you to apply some applications 
Uh, but they're saying you still have to meet the fill requirement and, and, and accordingly, okay, uh, when you're dealing with the fill. So no, you can't just jam them all in there, right? And of course, there is an informational note that says, hey, see Table 1, Chapter 9, including Note 9 for allowable cable fill of circular raceways. Then it reminds you to see 31015B3A for required and passive reductions for multiple cables installed in a common raceway. So it is reminding you under that informational note, say, hey, don't forget, okay, your ampacities might be altered here. All right. All right. So let's keep on from that. So that is a change to kind of express to people that no, you just can't put as many NMs cables, for example, inside of a, a non-flexible raceway. Uh, in this application. You're still going to have to meet the fill, which is resulting in you might have multiple raceways. Okay? Who cares? Put another raceway. All right. Next, table 312.6A, minimum wire bending space for terminals and minimum width of wiring gutters. Uh, The significant change here was that compact stranded 8,000 series aluminum alloys were added to the table. Um... Previously, kind of the misconception was that it only applied to, to copper, and so we didn't have any guidance for aluminum. Uh, incidentally, Unquo Wire provided nearly $80,000 worth of aluminum compact uh, to this study to help get this study done uh, on behalf of NEMA and some of NEMA members, and uh, I think Chad Kennedy with Schneider was involved in it and all that. So we donated the wire for this study. And we shipped it all down to them, and they did this study to show that, you know what, compact stranded aluminum bends really well, and it follows pretty much consistent with the the copper allowances here. So it goes all the way up to a 1,000 KC mil application, 12 up to a 1,000, and it gives you some some guidance here based on the the wires per terminal. So this is a revision that adds 8,000. It also added a note at the bottom that just said, look, uh, this is this bending radius in this column has to do with up to a thousand kc mil, and it's eight thousand series. So basically, that's what it's saying. Um, and it also is reminding you that if you're dealing with the minimum width, even with you're dealing with the aluminum, it's still going to use the the quote all other conductors values for this application. Okay, you're not going to use that for the uh, minimum width of a wire gutter, you're not going to use the aluminum values in column two and then associated size. You're going to use thus of other conductors. Okay. So you're still going to use the other. Conductors. So that's all it's giving you some guidance on there. Okay. So the minimum width of a wiring gutter is still going to use the values that are listed in the quote, all other conductors values within that table. Just keep in mind. All right. So that was the change um, to that. Next change is 312.8B, which is for switches and overcurrent device enclosures. And this has to do with uh, installing uh, power monitoring equipment inside of those uh, uh, enclosures. Now, you're still going to have the 75% cross-sectional area requirement as you would for any splice tap or feed-through conductors. Um, you're going you're to still going to have those limitations for those conductor splices and taps and whatnot. That's that, it's going to take up the same 75% requirement here. Okay. The biggest change here is look, if I've got an enclosure that the, it has to be identified 
uh, for use with a power monitoring equipment inside of it, okay? So the power, the enclosure for switches and overcurrent devices shall be permitted to contain power monitoring equipment where all of the following conditions are met. The first condition is the power monitoring equipment is identified as a field installed accessory as part of listed equipment or is a listed kit that has been evaluated for field installation in a switch or O-current device enclosure, okay? So you have to meet those components to be able to put this power monitoring equipment in. The next step is, like I said, once you can put it in there because the equipment and everything's listed for the application or it's a listed field evaluation kit that gets in there for installation, the next thing is you gotta treat it the same way you would for splices, taps, or whatnot, that it can exceed 75% of the cross-sectional area of the space to which it's, in, which, which it's installed, okay? Really hard to exceed the 75% in that application, all right? So it's the same type of thing that you had to do under 312.8A, uh, most notably item two, which is the 75% cross-sectional area of the space to which it's installed. Uh, that's the same again for conductors, splices, and taps. Um, but if you're gonna install this power monitoring equipment in it, first of all, it's gotta be listed. It's gotta be listed equipment. It's got to be listed for the application to go in this equipment. And I think the manufacturers are going to take care of that. All right. Just kind of giving you the change. All right. Next change is 314.16 A and B. This is dealing with the number of conductors and outlets, uh, device and junction boxes and conduit bodies. Now we have permanent barrier application where we have to make, take up account for that barrier. Let's just say we have a box and we have a permanently installed barrier we might have a cubic inch value on that box, but this barrier does take up some of that cubic inch value. So unless it's marked, we have to have a value now to subtract from that cubic inch value in this box. Now I'm hoping that if it's a box that already has the barrier permanently mounted in it, that this is already taken care of and it has some kind of marking on it like you do with plaster rings and what have you. But if it's not, we do have some guidance now for that. So there's new text was added to accommodate the boxes with an interior barrier or internal barriers for box fill and box, uh, uh, for box volume and box fill calculations. So we have some guidance now. So what do we got? So we have the first one, which is 314.16a. We have, it's called box volume calculations. If we jump down halfway through it, and remember we're talking about a lot of these boxes that are actually listed in table 314.16a. It says where a box is provided with one or more securely installed barriers, the volume shall be a portion of, uh, I don't like that word. What is it? I like it. It's a, <laughs> it says a volume shall be a portion to each of the resulting space. Each barrier, if not marked with its volume, shall be considered to take up a half a half a cubic inch if it's metal and one cubic inch if it's non-metallic okay so i guess the metal is always a little thinner and then non-metallic's a little thicker takes up more space so you have to account for that box volume calculation if it is a permanently installed or securely i should say a securely installed barrier then you have to uh, adjust your your actual volume accordingly for each barrier, okay? 
Uh, and then when it deals with box fill calculation, it goes on to give guidance now of each of those spaces. It says each space within a box installed with a barrier shall be calculated separately. So we have to determine the volume overall. We have to then install, take, take into account the divider that's there, the barrier. Once that's done, we treat each one of these spaces separately. So if I have a certain volume, okay, that's of these boxes, which was basically based on the paragraphs in 314, 16B1 through B5, okay? And those are all those volumes that you have to take into account. Now, each space has to be treated separately, okay? So you have to start out with some box volume. You have to account for the dividers. Then that's going to equate to what you have as two separate areas. Once you'd establish that and you have the volume of each separate area, then you can determine box fill calculations for those areas. Okay. All right, let's go on. That's the change that we have for 2017 for that application. All right. Oh, I should have mentioned another thing that 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 this that second part deals with when we're talking about each space within a box, a barrier shall be calculated separately. Um, this also came about during the process, development process, code making panel nine, remove the term gang when it deals with uh, six locations under the column for box trade sizes in table 314.16a, which deals with metal boxes. Uh, metal boxes are supplied as individual boxes, and then, of course, you would, you would gang them together, okay? Now, the current text for 314.16a makes it clear that wiring volumes after ganging are not to be applied to box by box, but rather to the assembled sections, okay? So keeping that in mind, table 314.16a was considered to be inconsistent by some users of the code and that some of the existing rows, such as for FS boxes, single cover gang, uh, reflect multi-gang box uh, availability, whereas other rows for devices boxes do not reflect common availability of multiple gang boxes. So the importance of here that you're going to treat each one of these uh, as separately. Okay. So that newly added sentence in 314.16b will also make it clear that each space within a box installed with an interior barrier uh, will be, will need to be calculated totally separately. Okay. So kind of, so, so that all kind of ties together and we just get rid of the word gang, get rid of the confusion. Uh, the reality is once you connect them all together, then you treat it as an assembly. So the removal of the word gang kind of uh, gets rid of that confusion that some people had when you're dealing with boxes that aren't commonly available as multi-gang boxes. So the word gang was still there for things like FS boxes and whatnot. So made it a little confusing. So, But again, I think I like the fact that you you have to account for the barrier now and you have to account for each space individually if you have a barrier. Okay, so that's different application. All right, next, 314.17b, type NM cable entering metal boxes. Now, we are familiar when we needed at least a quarter of an inch of sheathing to, to go inside of a non-metallic box, but there really wasn't a requirement for that to extend inside a metal box. So now that is in the code under 314.17b. It says that it has to extend not less than a quarter of an inch inside the box and beyond any cable clamp. So... It's got to at least have a quarter of an inch in, 
but it might have more because if you have an internal clamp, then it has to extend beyond the clamp. I think what was happening is a lot of times it might come into the box since there was no requirement. Sometimes it didn't extend in enough and when the clamp was tightened down, it was actually tightened down on the individual wires rather than onto the sheathing. So again, this was added. It has to extend into the box, even for metal now, at least a quarter of an inch and it has to extend in beyond any clamp that's in the box. So that was the change in 2017. Uh, as we know, when you're dealing with a non-metallic box, it just had to extend in uh, a quarter of an inch uh, for single nail-ups, for example. Um, and in here, it's extending it now to metal boxes as well, okay? When you're dealing with non-metallic sheath cable. And that is under 314.17b. All right, so that adds that change to the next. Next change is 314.27e. It's called separable attachment fittings. These are fittings that are designed. They actually now come under what's called a supporting receptacle. They actually go into the box. They're designed by a company that produces luminaires and fans. Um, I don't know if they make the fans. They make the, this, this device. And it's actually a mating device where it has two different, three or four different tracks that connect together. So you mount one on the fan or luminaire and the other mounts on the junction box or outlet box and they mate together and they lock up and they're designed to support the weight. So you have all the other requirements for the securing and supporting a box is 50 pounds listed on the, on the actual box itself or if it's designed to hold 70 pounds or more, it's got to be listed if it's more than 70 um, and whether it's a fan box, all that's still incorporated here. It's just now you have a device that's allowed to go in here. Now you got to remember that you also have to account for the volume that this takes up in a box as well. Okay. So that all has to be accountable, accounted for. But now you have the ability to add this thing called a separable attachment fitting. So that was added to 314.27. Again, it's a male to female type of device. It connects together. That is designed. It's oriented. It supports the weight. It's, um, it, it's also designed to support the, the, the weights of the limitations based on the, the box itself. And so that was the, the, the change that was added here. It's new. It's a support. It's called a listed locking support and mounting receptacle. Uh, so that's, that's what it is. It's, it's a new type of mating system that can support luminaires and, uh, and fans, uh, in the box. And you got to remember that it's, uh, you know, the boxes that support luminaires, lamp holders, ceilings, suspended paddle fans, and other types of ULS equipment, uh, now in 314.27E now permits listed locking support and mounting receptacles. And supporting means for supporting luminaires, lamp holders, ceilings, suspended pedal fans. So you're going to see these come on the market, okay, if they're not already out. Uh, we actually got to see a sample of one during Code Making Panel 17, and they are actually a pretty neat device. Kind of reminds me of a tracking system where you have one side, one conductor, and they connect together and touch, and then it has some kind of locking mechanism that supports the weight. And they're going to be listed for their applications. So look for those on the market. If not out now, I guess I'll throw a shout out to the maker of those. Uh, and that would be to Safety Quick Lighting and Fan Corporation that makes this uh, little device. All right, next is 320.6, which is AC cable. 
all they did was add the requirement for AC cable and associated fittings to be listed. We already had that requirement uh, theoretically in the code because by virtue of the UL standard, but incidentally, it is listed. It is making a statement now. It's new. It says cable type wiring methods and associated fittings are required to be listed. This wasn't the only place it was added here. It says type AC cable and associated fittings shall be listed. We already pretty much required it. 1103B required listed and label equipment. Uh, but this kind of makes it clear. All right. And this wasn't the only one. Uh, this change also is in AC cable, FC, MV, MC, MI, NM, NMC, and NMS, which incidentally already required the cables to be listed anyway. I mean, it said it, uh, but all it did was add the term associated fittings because really you need to make sure that the fittings are also listed to go with these cable methods. So uh, it also applies to TC, SC, and UF. So all of these, there were different submittals to add this language to it. Uh, as well and add the associated fittings language to it as well. So that was added to all of these. And of course with again NM and NMC and NMS which nobody makes in NMS and UF uh, they were already required to be listed but it just added the term and associated fittings to the list. Okay. Uh, incidentally IGC uh, which was integrated gas spacer cable was excluded from the list since no product standard or methodology exists for listing this wiring method. There really is hard to list it. It's hard to require it to be listed when there isn't anything that's standard to, to require that listing to. So that was excluded. Next, 324.125. If you're familiar with dealing with this flat conductor cable, which goes underneath the carpet, sometimes it's an, a good retrofit option for certain applications. Um, they added to the uses not permitted. The only change here was you couldn't use it in schools or hospital buildings before. Uh, but it also added this time to say, well, okay, look, you can use it in the administ administrative offices areas of those of the schools and hospitals. You still can't use it in schools and hospitals buildings, but in those administrative office areas, yeah, we'll let you use it. Okay. So that was added to the 2017 uh, again, there's uh, four other areas that you're not permitted to use it. Uh, again, those are in wet locations, outdoors or indoor wet locations, where it's subject corrosive vapors. You can't use them in hazardous classified locations. You can't use it in residential, school, or hospital buildings. Obviously, most notably, you certainly couldn't use it in patient care areas anyway, but that is part of hospital buildings. Except now they go on to say, well, hey, wait a minute. In schools and hospital buildings, you can't use it, but we'll let you use it in the administrative office areas. So they kind of gave you a little lax. I don't know that I like how they did that because these are uses not permitted. It really should be under the uses permitted application in dot 10, where it says it can be used in the administrative office areas of schools and hospitals. I don't like when we dump stuff in the uses not permitted because it causes confusion, but okay, whatever. That's what it's trying to say. So that's if you're used to using this type FCC, now you have clearly you, if you're doing it in hospitals and schools, in the administrative office areas, go for it if you want to use it. You know what? It makes sense too, because there's a lot of remodeling that takes place in schools and in um, uh, hospitals and in the administrative areas where they're changing walls, changing layouts, then maybe it makes sense as a retrofit type of product.
All right. Next change, 336.10.9 for tray cable. We have some expanded use of tray cable. Yeehaw! I'm excited about that because you know what? All tray cable is is SE cable on steroids. Okay, still got the same type of generic binder material, although SE cable has a fiberglass binder tape. Uh, you still have extruded jacket. It's twice the thickness of SE cable. The inner conductors are exactly the same as you would in other types of cables, you know, THHN, THWN-2, or XHHW-2. There is no different to those inner conductors. It's just a thicker jacket, but we do have some expanded use now. They are going to allow it in one and two family dwellings uh, as long as it has passed a joist pull test. So as long as we apply the JP tested mark on it, uh, or just JP tested on there, then we can use it in one and two family dwellings. Is, um, so that is an application. Now it is very limited in those one and two family dwellings because it has to have both power and control conductors in that cable. Uh, I disagree with that because I don't think you need to have power and control. I think it should probably be type TCER cable uh, identified for joist pull are permitted in one and two family dwellings. Why do I need to have power and control? What's the significance of both? Anyway, it was some people's way of giving us a bone but still restricting us because they're afraid that it's going to affect the other products they sell. I didn't say that, but you heard that, right? So at any rate, there we go. Uh, Remind you that if you do use it inside of a one and two family dwelling, that it still needs to be installed in accordance with part two of article 334. Keeping in mind that the ampacity value limitations in 334.80 or 340.80, which is UF cable, remember that they're not going to apply. That was where it was limited to 60 degrees C. Okay. So this is when you're dealing with, it only applies though, when you're dealing with generator and associated equipment for generators that have a ratings of 75 degrees C or higher terminals, you can ignore the 334.80 or 340.80 for UF. Okay. You can ignore those, but any other application, you can't ignore it. Okay. It's installed just like non-metallic sheet cable part two. Okay. So you just have this allowance if you're dealing with generator because usually those lugs are rated higher 75 or application. Okay. So that's the change. We're expanding the use of the good old tray cable. So there was a revision here, and it's new. Um, again, I don't understand why they made the change and it allowed us to now install it in one and two family dwellings, and they were so concerned about it, yet they still won't allow it to leave a cable tray unless it's TCER, and it has to be in an industrial establishment. Hmm. I don't know. We'll, we'll wonder about that one, and I'll let you figure out why they probably did that. It's called protecting your turf. I get you. All right. Let's move on. Oh, another thing I should say that they actually added an item 10 now that says direct burial unless identified uh, were identified uh, where identified for such use. So it is permitted now more positive language to allow you to, to put tray cable underground, uh, which you could before. Um, but it was under the uses not permitted, and then it talked about unless it was identified for use. Now it's been moved under the permitted usage and says, look, you can direct bury it as long as it's identified for the use. And I can tell you most of the trade cables are going to be identified for direct burial use. Okay, So that was the change for 2017. Now I encourage everybody out there to, to submit, uh, to go back and read all of the substantiation from the code-making panel 
when it comes to why they allowed it in one and two family dwellings. Look at all the language and look who are the individuals that voted against it. And then look at all the people that voted for it. And when you get to 2020, I look forward to plenty of submittals that say, hey, read what the people from UL said. Read from what the other people at the table said. Read the comments that were submitted in associated public inputs that were submitted, most notably the ones that I submitted, and understand that it is just a non-metallic product, no different than SE. It's twice the thickness of the jacket on SE. Why are you restricting its use? Go on and allow it to be used for things like to feed remote distribution panels. Maybe somebody wants a little more robust jacket on this product for a feeder. Hey, I'm just saying it is exactly constructed pretty much the same way. It will pass all the other tests that SE produced. Some people will say, well, it's not tested to SE cable. Of course it's not. That's UL 854. This is 1277. But I can promise you that it is exactly constructed the same way. It's extruded with with sheathing the same way. It's no different. Okay, anyway, let's go on. I encourage you to submit public inputs for 2020, expanding the use of tray cables. See who's going to take up that challenge. Let's see who's let's see who's out there who's willing to take up that challenge because I'm going to tell you what. In some installations, I would much rather have the option, maybe in a commercial application, that I would like to run TCER to my remote located panel boards than I would maybe an SE cable because it's metal studs or whatnot. And I'm a little bit worried about the, the, the sheathing and the conductors that maybe I prefer to have a thicker sheathing on my feeder, whereas I'd like to use the flexibility of a of a non-metallic product, but I really don't want to use SE, which has plenty of uses for SE, plenty of uses. But maybe in this case, I need something a little bit more rugged, and I don't want to run MC because of the cost or project of this job, which MC is a great product anyway. I just need options, and as an electrician, I want options. This is a viable product. People say, well, you don't need it because you got SE or you got MC. No, 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 no. You need TC because it is a non-metallic option. We can pass the joist pull. It has a thicker sheathing, which affords it a little more protection. And I can run it through a building that might be subject to other trades, maybe not being so diligent in how they install their products. I like the added safety. I like the thicker insulation. I'm just saying. Okay. All right, I jumped off that. I'm going to see who out there takes up that challenge and submits a public input for that for 2020. You know, you can start doing them right now. I'm just saying. Okay. Next, at 344.14, dissimilar metals, type RMC. We had some changes here. Basically, we're trying to clarify the dissimilar metal issue or of galvanic action that can take place. They did add the word galvanized in front of steel in many applications uh, in order to clarify that we're talking about galvanized steel RMC. Uh, And so the change here really was that stainless steel RMC must be used only with stainless steel fittings, approved accessories, outlet boxes, and enclosures. Okay, So that's the real crux of this change is is the, the last sentence is reminding us that, look, stainless steel RMC shall only be used with stainless steel fittings, approved accessories, outlet boxes, and enclosures, okay? That's the key change here. 
All right, let's move on. Next is 350.28, which is trimming of LFMC. Now, a lot of the different wiring methods required the proper trimming and removal of any rough or sharp edges. This isn't really new. .28 is found in quite a few other ones like uh, FMC, PVC, HDPE, uh, 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 non-metallic underground conduit and uh, with conductors, uh, 355 RTRC, 356 for LFNC, and 362 for ENT, but it really wasn't in here for, for LFMC, which, be honest with you, really needed to be because that metal that's in there is pretty darn sharp. So when you're trimming it down, and there's a way to do it, uh, you just need to make sure that you get rid of any of those sharp points, and that's what needs to take place. Usually when I trim it down, I usually try to trim down the inner metal down just below so that it's it's a little bit less proud of the actual outside uh, flexible metal material, the PVC material. So it kind of sets recess down just a little bit. Uh, that's kind of how I do it to make sure. And then I make sure all the sharp edges are right. Now, that's something that we always would do as electricians, but it really wasn't in there for LFMC. Well, now it is. So they put a trimming requirement, 350.28 was added to harmonize itself with all of these other uh, conduit systems that did require it, or even tubing systems that did require that trimming, okay? Now, these are real similar to the reaming requirements that you see in intermediate conduit or rigid metal conduit or even EMT, okay? They have a .28 that's talking about for reaming. So this is very similar. It's just trimming and make sure you trim any of the sharp edges away. That's a common sense thing uh, to take care of. All right, next is 358.10, uses permitted, EMT. So the change here was under uses permitted, EMT has been revised for consistency with the other steel conduit articles. That's IMC and RMC. So basically it's giving you a uses permitted for EMT and it's you have A and you have a B. And you have A, B, and C, and D, which it states in the code has an N beside it. It's kind of new material, but it was extracted material uh, from the previous code that was put out into new points into the 2017 for clarity of use. Now, incidentally, the manufacturers of this galvanized have a galvanized, a zinc coating on the outside or inside process that is actually corrosive resistant. It's part of their inherent process. Uh, but it's up to the installer to understand the environment that they're installing it in. And it is something that the AHJ could say, look, this is a severe corrosive condition. We want some kind of supplemental protection. And that is in their purview to do that. But the manufacturers of this, these uh, EMTs also generally manufacture RMC and IMC are trying to tell you that, look, it is already has in the process of its construction a, a protective corrosive resistant coating. Uh, that is either zinc inside or outside or galvanized process that does provide this protection. So what it says here, it says, look, in concrete or in direct contact with the earth in areas subject to severe corrosive influences, we're installed in accordance with 358.10b. That's the corrosion environments that we're going to see in a second. It says, okay, it's okay there if you can meet this requirement here. It also goes on to say, well, look, in damp, Dry and wet locations, it's fine. We do that all the time with EMT. Remembering the fittings also have to be for that environment as well, just keeping that in mind. And basically it also says in any hazard classified location, 
as permitted by other articles in the code. For for example, somewhere else in the code, in 500, 501, 502, if it allows you to use EMT, then it is permitted elsewhere in the code. So you got to remember, chapters 1 through 4 are general requirement, applies throughout the code. 4, 5, and 6 can change it, supplement it, and that's generally where you get hazardous locations will make some kind of change to what would be required in chapters one through four. So that's kind of what it's talking about. If it's permitted in other articles within this code, that's what it's talking about. Now, when it comes down to B, which is a new item that was extracted, it says corrosion environments. It says galvanized steel and stainless steel EMT, elbows and fittings. It says galvanized steel and stainless steel EMT, elbows and fittings shall be permitted to be installed in concrete in direct contact with the earth or areas subject to severe corrosive influences were protected by corrosion protection, which it is from the manufacturer, it says, and approved as suitable for the condition. Now, the approved means the local AHJ has to determine whether or not any additional protection is necessary. Okay? That's what it's talking about. All right? So that was the change uh, that was added to that aspect. All right, let's move on to the next one. The next one is going to be 366.20, parallel conductors in auxiliary gutters. Okay, so in this application, what we're doing is, here's a typical thing. When you're running parallel conductors in an auxiliary gutter, up to this point, we had no guidance on how they're to be run. We understand the importance of the uh, the magnetic fields and inductive heating uh, and the current imbalance and inductive reactants that can cause problems uh, when you uh, separate conductors of groups um, depending on the different phases. So there was problems with that. We understand that with single conductors comprising of each phase, neutral and grounded conductor in an AC circuit, uh, they are permitted to be connected in parallel. All of that is permitted by 310.10H, Okay. But let me read you what was added in the language for 366.20. And incidentally, this was also uh, also being applied as well, not just here, but also um, it already existed in cable trays in 392.20C. But the same parallel conductor requirement is also being added to metal wireways as well, 376.20, okay? and 378.20 for non-metallic wireways. But let me read you, because this is quite significant, because it reduces the issue of inductive reactants and the heating that can take place uh, in these conductors. It says, where single conductor cables comprising of each phase, neutral or grounded conductor of an alternated current circuit are connected in parallel, as permitted by 31010H, which is the paralleling requirements, same length, characteristics, you know, whatever. Uh, it says the conductors shall be installed in groups consisting of not more than one conductor per phase, neutral and grounded conductor to prevent current imbalance, uh, which means that the lengths are different because we have to remember to maintain the same length. That's a paralleling property uh, so in parallel conductors due to inductive reactants. Okay, so. When I'm coming out and I've got parallel sets and I'm coming to the auxiliary gutter, I have to make sure that I take, if I have a phase A, a phase B, and a phase C, we use this example. And what I want to do is each of these groups shall consist of a single conductor from each phase, such as A, B, and C, and one from, one from the neutral, 
granite conductor. All right, each group of conductors should be installed with sufficient spacing between the bundles. Okay, in order to allow for air circulations and cooling of this application, so you don't want to you want to separate them out. Uh, for example, we had A, B, and C in a grounded conductor together in one bundle, and then we have if it's parallel, we have the other set of A, B, and C together with the grounded conductor, and that's a separate bundle. They have to have adequate space apart, but the requirement here to connect them all of those phases A, B, and C and the grounded conductor together. The importance of that is to ensure that we're getting rid of what's called this electromagnetic induction. Uh, it's really what happens due to the electromotive force across conductors when current supplied, voltage is applied, everything takes place. Uh, it creates this magnetic field. Uh, and we really want to make sure that we reduce the potential overheating of the insulation, potential breakdown due to this induction process that takes place. And we're very familiar with that. Uh, in other aspects of the code where it requires this to, to take place. Um, but here in auxiliary gutters, it's new information, okay? And it's to combat that inductive reactance and that subdued heating or overheating that can damage the insulation. So long story short, if you're going to go from equipment up to an auxiliary gutter, and we know that an auxiliary gutter is associated with adding extra space between pieces of equipment, all right? That basically when I'm running a parallel set, I want to make sure that the A, B, and C conductors and the granite conductor are connected together. That that one conductor from each phase is together. Uh, and so really if I'm doing a parallel two, uh, two let's say uh, 250s, parallel, an A, B, and a C, and I have a granite conductor, then I want to make sure that I have uh, A, B, and C in the granite conductor for one set together. And then I want to have A, B, and C in the granite conductor of the other one together. And then there's separation between them, but we want to bundle them kind of apart. But keeping A, B, and C in the granite conductor together, okay, uh, it's going to help keep it and reduce current imbalance. Uh, and it's going to help the reduce that inductive reactance that takes place, okay? If you didn't put them together and you separated the conductors, uh, then you get this inductive reactance, this heating, this imbalance, and it could be a potential breakdown. So, you know, this is a requirement. So this parallel conductors in auxiliary gutter requirement is going to go a long way to avoid the issues of inductive reactance and the excessive heating that takes place. All right. So that's the change that we have in the, uh, now this was already required, like I said, in cable trays. Uh, so it's just kind of uh, trying to combat that electromagnetic, indu electromagnetic induction uh, aspect. Okay. Next, let's go on to 370.80, ampacity of conductors when we're dealing with a cable bus. Okay. Okay, so in here, what we're dealing with is the ampacity of conductors. Now, the change really took place to A, which is 370.80A. Uh, is one of the changes, but just said, look, it changed the title. It says ampacity of single insulated conductors. It didn't change the language. You're still going to apply for cable buses in accordance with table 31015B7, uh, 17, excuse me, and table 31015B19 for installations up to and including 2000 volts. Of course, also if it's uh, you can use 31060C69 through C70 for 2001 to 35,000 volts. 
The real change here was they added into the application where you're dealing with ampacitive cables rated 2,000 volts or less. It really mirrored the requirements of a cable tray system and how to address the ampacities of single conductors, okay? And adding that application of it. A lot of times also people didn't understand that 110.14 terminal limitations still applies here. So while I can use these ampacities, I still got to worry about the fact that my terminals are limited. Or if it's over a thousand volts, I had to be aware of 110.40, which deal with over a thousand, whereas 110.14 C deals with thousand volts or less. Okay. So I think that the thing here was when you're designing it, you're installing it, and you're trying to build a cable bus system that under 370.90, the users didn't really remember that even though you had all these impacity values that you had to deal with in the tables, that you still had terminal limitations under 110.14c that applied if it's 1,000 volts or less. And if it's over 1,000 volts, you still had the limitations of 110.40 that had to take place. A great example of that is using the 90 degrees C conductor uh, on equipment where the terminals actually live and it's limited to 75. Okay, so you are limited to that 75 degree rated terminal. The other thing it did was it said, look, we also needed some guidance when it comes to how to account for the ampacities uh, in these conductors the same way we did in a cable tray system under 392.80. So 370.80 gives you these al alignment of these ampacities for cable bus systems that really mirror the single conductor insulated for cable trays. And they removed any inconsistency between these two wiring methods. And so it added you this, this list here of B, which is ampacity of cables rated 2000 volts or less in a cable bus. And then it kind of correlates itself with the same thing that you did with a cable tray. And then it talks about for ampacity of medium voltage and MC cables rated 2001 volts and over it also went on and gave you some guidance. And I will tell you that even when you get to B, when it talks about ampacities for 2000 volts or less, uh, A just changed the title, but B still reflects you back to 31015B17 or 31015B19. Uh, all of them reflect you back. So that, that really didn't change, but it bought in all the requirements and the adjustments and everything that had to take place uh, or anything that you had to do as same as you would for a cable tray. It's just now here to kind of make it simplified so that you didn't have a confusion with that, okay? I'll also remind you that adjustment factors in 31015B3A do not, shall not apply to the ampacity of cables in cable buses. So you don't have to worry about adding that adjustment factor into it uh, for or more or whatnot. That's taken care of right here in this allowance here, 370.80B. Uh, can, can I give you that guidance there? All right, so that is the more significant changes for chapter three. Hopefully you enjoyed the, the radio cast. I think we went about an hour. Um, those were the more significant. Obviously there's little subtle changes, but those were the more significant. Look for a video to come out soon and we'll discuss all these changes and many more. That's just kind of something to listen to. Wanted to keep it about an hour. So, hey, 
Thanks for listening. Visit our website, which is electricalcodeacademy.com.net or .org. Visit masterthenec.net.com.org. Visit our Twitter account at at masterthenec. Visit our Facebook page by just searching for on Facebook for Master the NEC. Hopefully you'll get some information out of this podcast and uh, be sure to send your questions or future podcast requests to info at electrocodeacademy.com or info at masterthenec.com. Thanks for listening. Till next time, God bless.